Hey, what's good, jazz fans? Welcome to Jabber Jazz, your home for Utah jazz basketball content, always ad-free from a fan's perspective and with an analytical emphasis. I'm Adam Bushman, your host. You can find me on Twitter at Adam underscore Bushman. And today we're diving into all things draft. We're going to break down how the draft ended up unfolding, um, who the jazz got in the draft, we're going to grade the result of the three picks, given the context that we knew at the time and since then. And we're going to be looking ahead to the coming year for these rookies, for the team as a whole, and beyond to see what we can expect. If you like what we're doing here at Jabber Jazz, please consider subscribing to the podcast and on YouTube. We'd also appreciate you following us on Twitter at Jabber underscore Jazz and leaving a review or comment that helps us get uh, this content and other things out to as many jazz fans as possible. Well, without further ado, let's Jabber Jazz. So hopefully you all joined us on the live stream, which was a lot of fun. A big thanks to Josh Roberts and towards the end there, McCade Pearson for jumping on with me as we broke down the draft live. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Hopefully can do it next year as well. It was really interesting as the draft unfolded because there weren't too many surprises as we started getting... um, as we started getting towards Utah's first pick. So before pick nine, the top four was pretty much chalk, exactly as we would have expected. Wembenyama, Brandon Miller, Scoot Henderson, Amon Thompson. And Detroit getting a sore Thompson at five wasn't too surprising. In fact, we'd heard rumors that they were interested in them, but it indicated, and we kind of broke it down on the podcast, that there could be potential for a trade-up if uh, if Detroit and Utah had worked things out. We know that Utah was interested in a sore Thompson, so that seemed like a possibility if, as things went on, um, they could figure out perhaps... Uh, as they knew who would be available at nine, Detroit would have been uh, interested and willing to to trade to trade down and swap places with the Jazz. That's what we were kind of thinking at the time. Then Orlando went with Black at six. Indiana went with Bilal Koulibaly at seven, which gave us the impression that okay, Jarris Walker and Cam Wentmore are starting to fall here, and because Washington had only been rumored around guards, we thought there was a good chance Walker would have slipped. But Washington and Indiana ended up doing that switcheroo, um, and Washington uh, selected Jairus Walker for on behalf of Indiana, and uh, it turned out that my favorite prospect for the Jazz at 9 ended up not falling. Uh, Whitmore fell to the Jazz at 9, which felt just absolutely heaven-sent, but the Jazz ended up going after Hendricks. And on the broadcast, uh, Josh and I were pretty disappointed. Both of us had Whitmore ranked uh, far higher than Hendricks. And as we kind of went through, it became obvious that Whitmore falling was, um, was something that was scaring the majority of teams in the draft process. Um, between 10 and 15 is when things kind of got pretty interesting as far as trades go. Dallas executed that trade with Oklahoma City. So Wallace, Case and Wallace, uh, ended up going to Oklahoma. And Dallas went back to 12. Um, and we were thinking that meant, at least I thought, with Case and Wallace off the board, that meant Whitmore was like the only guy in my tier three who was left over. Things started going totally according to plan. And then Toronto Sorex selects Grady Dick. That was kind of an out-of-nowhere pick for me. Um, I hadn't heard any buzz around it. 
that was kind of the primary team that you thought was going after Keontae George. So it was interesting that uh, that he slipped by there. Atlanta went after Kobe Bufkin, which was intriguing. And now the Jazz are sitting here at 16 with Cam Whitmore on the board, and you felt like him falling was a blessing that, hey, yeah, sure, the injury concerns, whatever, was probably too rich at 9, but here at 16, it's kind of perfect. And the Jazz opted for Keontae George. Again, something that was pretty disappointing for Josh and I because Whitmore was so highly ranked per our boards. But it was a big indication that something was seriously, seriously wrong with Whitmore. He continued to fall even more spots. There was a lot of variability in this range between when the Jazz selected next. You had Jaime Hawkes Jr. going before Camp Whitmore to Miami. You had Brandon Podzimski going early to uh, the Golden State Warriors. Um, Whitmore ended up uh, falling all the way to 20 to Houston. So they, as well, you could see it as they passed on him at least once as well. Um, Nick Smith Jr. went to Charlotte at 27. And then we had so many guys on the on the board for the Jazz. Um, you had Maxwell Lewis, Leonard Miller, Gigi Jackson, Colby Jones, Andre Jackson Jr., Bryce Sensiball were all on the board. A couple of the guys that were taken before the Jazz could select again, Whitmore, and then Dariq Whitehead, I was I was disappointed, didn't fall to the Jazz at 28. He went to Brooklyn. And the Jazz went with uh, Sensabaugh to the delight of, um, of Josh, who was on the broadcast. Uh, and after 28, a bunch of more wild stuff happened. Gigi Jackson fell all the way to 45 to Memphis. Colby Jones went 34 to Sacramento. Leonard Miller, 33 to Minnesota. Andre Jackson Jr., 36 to Orlando. Maxwell Lewis to 40 to L.A. I like a lot of those picks. Every single one of his incredible value, all those guys I had going in the first round. And so for them to fall this far is uh, some really incredible value. Not everybody's going to hit. But to get those kind of talents, in my opinion, there in the second round was just a, an absolute an absolute shock to me, frankly. Um, some of the landing spots aren't super great, like Gigi Jackson in Memphis. Don't really like it. But others like Colby Jones in Sacramento, Andre Jackson Jr. Uh, to Orlando, and Maxwell Lewis to the Lakers, uh, those are all really, really good fits. So that's kind of how the, the night broke down in a simple version. If you want to uh, get a feel for uh, Josh and I's reactions and everything we thought about every single pick, I'd encourage you to go back through our podcast feed and look at part one and part two of our draft live shows. Additionally, you can go on YouTube and you can see the full video edition of of the podcast where you could see the top five remaining players at each pick for myself and josh and kind of get a feel for how we were how we were thinking the draft in real time was going So who did the Jazz get? We're going to break down each of the three picks here, Taylor Hendricks, Keontae George, and Bryce Sensabaugh, give you some insight into how we evaluated them ahead of the process, dive into fit as well with the Jazz, and discuss their future. So who is Taylor Hendricks? Well, this guy is a 19-and-a-half-year-old freshman from the University of Central Florida. He measured six foot eight with a plus 5-inch length which is about average for this draft class. Those are measurements that were confirmed at the Combine. 217 pounds, which puts him at a uh, 
class, a draft class average BMI of 23.5. I'm interested in BMI this year to kind of get a sense for how filled out prospects are. So the positions are really interesting. In my opinion, uh, I like to divvy up positions between offense and defense. In my opinion, he can oscillate between forward and center on offense and is probably best suited as a forward on defense. I think his shooting ability and shot blocking give him a unique pairing to where he can moonlight at the center position and back up units, but can play with just about anyone in the front court since he can insulate them defensively and spaces the floor. So here's some of my evaluations. The first thing I look at is presence, and this is... This is kind of a subjective uh, data point for me. I try to get a sense for how worried about the other, uh, how, how worried about this player is the other team on offense and defense. Do they notice him? Uh, can, can you kind of feel his presence on the court when you watch him? Uh, I put that as an 8 out of 10. I really felt like he made his, himself known. You didn't ever really lose sight of him when watching film. On impact, this impact measurement, again, is a little bit subjective. I kind of look at it as, it can, is he impacting the game when he's not scoring? Can he do other things that positively contribute to the game? And I put this at a 9 out of 10. Given his ability to generate positive disruption and activity on defense and be able to uh, deter um, shots at the rim, I felt like he was making a big impact when he wasn't scoring. Athleticism, that was tested at the Combine and just based upon my observations, rated out as an 8 out of 10. That's going to be a serious weapon given his, his size and length there in the front court. Agility was something that didn't measure out super well at the Combine, and I think you could see it a little bit on film. There were times when he looked super fast, but there were other times when he didn't look uh, super fluid, uh, super coordinated. Again, that's, I have him 6 out of 10. That's above average for his position, but it's something that could be improved over time, uh, especially as he gets more familiar and confident with the ball in his hands. Yeah, and the next one is feel. And feel is kind of a term that suggests, you know, how comfortable are you with the game as a whole. And I put him as an 8 out of 10. It felt like he had good feel for the game. Some things weren't, uh, didn't come as perfectly natural, um, like, you know, moving fluidly and, uh, and having good stop and start all the time. But I felt like he did have a really good feel for the game on both ends, and things came uh, pretty natural to him. Shooting. This is something that uh, isn't just three-point shooting, but how well are you as just a jump shooter at the foul line as well? I rated him as a 9 out of 10. And if he had been put in more situations where it wasn't just catch and shoot, but maybe he had a little more movement, maybe there was some more pull-up, he probably could have gotten to a 10 out of 10. But I have him at as a 9 out of 10. He was very, very solid on a lot of attempts, shooting over 40% from three in a variety of spots too, not just from the corners, but angles as well. Finishing. So this is finishing at the rim. I put him at a seven. Um, if you look at the tape, he really pops. He can uh, he can roll to the basket and catch lobs, but he also um, he also can follow up with uh, dunks and uh, and if he's given the ball um, at, at a running start to the hoop, you know he he generally finishes pretty good. Um, the numbers suggest that there's plenty of room for improvement, but the eye test kind of said to me that he's in a pretty good spot. 
Self-creation, I have it as, as a six, a little bit above average for this kind of combo forward center position, but still not, not near where you want to be for someone you hope is a star one day. Self-creation at a six out of 10. Wiggle, I put a four out of 10 and handle five out of 10. Uh, those are two things where he doesn't have a lot of confidence in the ball in his hands, navigating the court um, by himself with his dribble open. That's something that um, you, you don't necessarily want these projects or, or these prospects to be perfect, um, but you do want some areas in their game, and those are two areas that could be big for him to improve. Passing as well, just 5 out of 10. Didn't see him make a ton of uh, complex reads, but just kind of did the bare minimum. Now on to defense. I thought his movement on defense was, um, oh, excuse me, movement and now movement on offense. Uh, I thought he moved really well without the ball. Um, I thought he relocated to some different spots, um, was able to set screens, um, and was comfortable popping and rolling. So that's a pretty good sign as well. And now defense. If we look at defense for Taylor Hendricks, on ball I put a 7 out of 10, and off ball a 9 out of 10. I think he is pretty comfortable getting out on switches. Some of the um, quicker guys who aren't bothered by length um, are tough for him but when he is off ball and really kind of a secondary rim protector and can just be aware of what's going on and react to it I think is where he's at his best rebounding a night of a 10 very strong rebounder rebounder and activity this is generating steals and blocks without fouling again rated at 9 out of 10 for me uh, he's going to be just an absolute beast on defense and it's all thanks to his awareness a 10 out of 10 I think he's very aware of what's going on in his matchup and with the rest of the and with the rest of the core and the other nine guys that are that are going on so now let's talk fit between Taylor Hendricks and this current Utah Jazz team I really love the Laurie Taylor Walker trio um Call that the Bermuda Triangle for all I'm concerned. I think that uh, opposing teams are going to get lost down there and all that length, shot blocking, and athleticism. I think they can all play together, which is great. It means that you don't get concerned about paying all three of them because they can play all the same at the same time, which um, is something that the Jazz haven't had in their previous front court iterations. And they can soak up all of the minutes at the four position and most of the three in the five. Kelly likely gets pushed out, Kelly Olenek, long-term. But here in the short term, I think he's a, he's a fine mentor. They can play together, which is nice. And this is just the Jazz doubling down more on athleticism and on length. And those are two great things to do. And it doesn't come at the expense of shooting, which is fantastic. So what about the future of Taylor Hendricks? Well, if things go right... I kind of think he, he might be like a Jaron Jackson Jr. Or if things go right... He puts together some of the, uh, the dribbling and the handling, and he's able to have you know, defensive player of the year type, type potential. If those kind of things go right, yeah, he's Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, and and that, would be, that would be a pretty good star for the Jazz. The, if he's like the NBA version of who he is right now, he's kind of like a shorter Brook Lopez, who's a contributing starter, spaces the floor, puts a lid on the basket. You know, Brooke is a better passer than uh, Taylor Hendricks is right now, but Taylor's also got athleticism that Brooke has never had. So if things go wrong, meaning if some of the stuff doesn't translate um, and 
and, and perhaps, you know, he even regresses in some stuff. Perhaps he's Chris Boucher, Chris Boucher of the Toronto Raptors, meaning kind of like a perennial bench player who has, you know, really good stretches and stretches where you just kind of miss him and, and, and you don't really feel his impact. So that's Taylor Hendricks in a nutshell. We'll get a little bit later to where he and some of the others kind of project out. All right, who is Keontae George? Well, he's a 19-and-a-half-year-old freshman for Baylor. Um, he was measured in at 6 foot 4 inches, though it was unconfirmed since he did not participate on the, in the combine due to, I think, what was reported as a lingering injury. Uh, again, measured 185 pounds, which would put him at a 22-and-a-half BMI, which is a little below average, but again, unconfirmed measurements. His positions... I think that on offense, he's a guard, and I think he'll primarily defend guards. I don't anticipate him molding into a wing of any sort. I think his size, his skill set perfectly balances to uh, be a guard on both ends of the floor. Let's look into the evaluations. Presence, I put a 7 out of 10. It always definitely seemed like the opposing teams were were aware of Keontae, and, and they had him plenty in their scouting report. Especially towards the middle of the year, it seemed like when he was getting hot with his shot, teams especially would double-team him, would put him in situations where um, where he could shoot, but the best but the best avenue would be to pass out, and they knew that, and they would try to trap him in certain situations uh, on the pass and on the dribble. So um, I think they were well aware of him. Uh, but he didn't always, always, you know, command uh, their attention in a positive way. In some ways, it was just because he made the wrong choices. Impact, I put out a 5 out of 10. Um, this is one where I think he has an opportunity to improve his game to where, you know, he is in, impacting the game for the better when his shot isn't falling. And there are ways that he can do that, but he's got to work on them. Athleticism, I put a 7 out of 10, and agility a 7 out of 10. Um, he, he moves plenty well. He's not the best athlete. Um, he's also above average for his position. Uh, I think that he's just a really, really solid player in how he moves and, um, and how, how he's able to get on top of the rim and around guys. Uh, it's all just really, really solid. His feel for the game, I put as at an 8 out of 10. He has been doing this kind of stuff for a long time. He was an excellent high school player. And uh, I, I think that he, a lot of it just comes so, so naturally to him. And there are ways he can improve. But in some situations, I kind of feel like he falls into the trap of he can do things well enough that the coach won't tell him to stop. But that that he's not pushing himself necessarily at the moment to be better in some of those things. Now shooting. He is a 10 out of 10 in shooting as I have evaluated him. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's a finished product as a shooter, meaning that he can still improve with his efficiency, but he can get any shot he wants. And uh, it's really impressive the form that he has. Uh, he shoots off movement. He shoots standstill, catch and shoot, off the dribble. Um, and he gets into the paint, he can score at the rim, he can have a little bit of mid-range game. So he can kind of get any shot he wants, and he's prolific there. He does need to work on his consistency because he can be pretty streaky. Finishing is an 8 out of 10. Still some improvement there, but he showed really good signs in college. Self-creation, a 7 out of 10. 
Now, I docked him a little bit here because, yes, he can get any shot he wants, but it doesn't mean that every shot that he got was the shot he should be getting. He does need to work on his um, decision-making, picking his spots, and perhaps dribbling or passing, giving up the ball and moving without to get better set up. Those are things that can be learned at the next level. But uh, for now, he's got the package that gives you some pretty um, exciting potential. Wiggle, 9. Handle, 8 out of 10. Uh, those are, are really strong for him. He's plenty comfortable with the ball in his hands. The Jazz see him as a point guard long term, which means that, uh, that he can really lean into those skills. Passing a 7 out of 10. He's got a lot of passing talent, um, and he's got the eye for it. Uh, he is a little too late in some situations, um, and he may not read the defense perfectly, which kind of contributed to some high turnovers. Movement without the ball is an eight. Uh, when he did get off the ball, he never just kind of stood there. He was moving quite, quite well, uh, relocating to different spots. Hopefully he can lean a little bit more into that. Now on defense, on ball, he's just a five. I, I, didn't, I didn't get a ton of... Um, better than average on-ball defense from him. Um, it seemed like he got a little bit too interested in you know, taking a swipe at the ball or just trying to block on the backside. Off-ball, he was better at a six. Um, he's very good at anticipating steals, so his activity level was an eight out of 10. But on off-the-ball, I want you to be more aware of the uh, other eight guys around, around the court and how spacing kind of changes and on ball i just want you to maintain good positioning and good defensive habits rebounding i had it as a nine out of ten a really good guard rebounder his awareness was a six out of ten so his fit uh, he's going to be one of the few players that can get any shot they want on the team and he does have a chance to do it well um, he's got all of the all of the skills in, in terms of shot quickness shot form uh, he's got the ability to hit shots off the dribble, and he's a guy who kind of wants to take those shots as well. So I think that there's all the potential there. I think he's got enough balance on both ends of the floor that gets you, gets you excited for his potential. And if Utah wants to turn him into a point guard, I think it's good that they're sending that message now, and hopefully they just clear the way for him so that uh, he can do so. I think with Donovan Mitchell, we realized far too late that his best position would be at the one and we didn't clear the runway for him and absorb the early pains of him transitioning to a point guard and instead kind of uh, kind of dilly-dallied that initiative quite a bit. What's the future like for Keontae George? Well, I think if things go right, he's probably Bradley Beal or Devin Booker, which is like a superstar. Um, He's he's got that much talent, and it's and it's not just talent that was seen at Baylor. He's had this pedigree since high school and junior high. Um, if he's like the NBA version of himself right now, he's probably Jordan Poole, which is like a suspect starter who's not doing a ton else other than scoring, kind of streaky, um, which would be unfortunate. That which would be unfortunate. He's got plenty of potential to be more than that. But uh, hopefully he takes it upon himself to say that he's not a finished product and work on the other stuff in his game to be um, a complimentary player that's well-rounded and efficient. If things go wrong, he's probably like Ben McLemore, who's 
uh, perennial bench player, um, shooter, and ends up out of the league in six, seven years. So hopefully he's not that. Who is Bryce Sensiball? Well, he's another 19 and a half year old freshman from the Ohio State University. Six foot six, unconfirmed measurement. Some say that he's got you know a plus uh, two to four inch wingspan. Against again, unconfirmed. Um, well, that's plus two to four inches in length, so uh, longer wingspan than his height. 235 pounds, which puts him at a 27.2 BMI. That's a good amount above average. Um, however, it is unconfirmed. His positions, I've kind of said, are a wing on offense and defense. I think he's got the size to body up bigger players. Uh, and on offense, um, he kind of scales between the two and the three pretty well. Interested to see how that turns out in the NBA. It really will kind of def- depend on you know, what he does kind of with his body. Evaluations, uh, I put his presence at a 9 out of a 10. I felt like teams were scared to death of him when he was on the court. Impact, 7 out of 10. Didn't always feel like he was making the best contributions when he wasn't scoring, but he did them plenty well, especially as a rebounder. Athleticism, I put as a 4 out of 10. He has had a history of knee injuries. He has had a history of knee injuries, so that is that is something that may have you know lowered his athleticism that was displayed in high school. He also did not test at the combine. Agility, uh, he felt a lot more fluid and coordinated um, and quick than he seemed athletic. I put that at a seven out of ten. Feel is very high, eight out of ten. It definitely feel like a lot feels like a lot of the uh, of the game comes very natural to him. Shooting is where Bryce Sensabaugh really, really excels. I have him as a 10 out of 10 on my evaluation. The dude can get kind of any shot he wants as well, kind of similar to Keontae George. He does it in a different way. Uh, he, It seems like he's a little more intentional about it. Um, he doesn't rely as much on his athleticism uh, or his dribble and handle. But uh, he can make and take just really, really tough shots. And was one of the most efficient players in the college game all last year from a multitude of different levels. Really, really amazing shooter. Um, Finishing, he is at a 5 out of 10 for me. Um, I didn't see a ton of lift there when he was trying to finish around the basket. I didn't see an incredible knack to finish in traffic. Um, interesting to see how that translates to the NBA. That was part of my concern on him overall coming into the process. Self-creation, though, 8 out of 10. Again, he can take and make tough shots, and there's a wide array, mid-range, from the three-point line, off the dribble, catch and shoot. Um, he, He can really do a lot to get his own shot, but he doesn't have to all the time, which is nice. Wiggle, he's at about a seven out of ten. It's not something that he uses a ton, but he's but he's got um, some he's got some shake and bake to his game. Handle six out of ten. It's not super strong. He isn't he isn't uh, you know wheeling the ball through his legs behind the backs. You know spin moves, all these kind of crazy dribble sequences. But uh, but it is very functional and and very. Um, very useful for for his approach to scoring 
Passing, 5 out of 10. I didn't see a ton of passing in his game. And um, I didn't see a lot of you know efficiency there either. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of uh, results and scales when he's got better teammates. Um, and he's got a... He's playing in a league where there's a lot better spacing and such. So I'll be curious to see that one passing 5 out of 10. Movement, though, 7 out of 10. He, he does relocate really well. Um, he does constantly keep moving, similar to some of the other shooters that we've evaluated in this class. He does a pretty good job of that. Now moving to the defensive side. This is where I think there's a lot of room for improvement. On-ball defense, I rated as a 4 out of 10. Um, didn't it, it didn't seem like uh, you know he was very quick laterally. Didn't maintain good position. Seemed like he was far more content letting the guy drive by and then trying to block on the back end. Off ball, uh, six out of ten. A little bit better there. A little above average. Um, in that I thought he was uh, more aware of what was going on um, with the other eight guys on that side of the floor. Um, and in p maintaining you know, good position to help, but then also staying semi-close to his man. Rebounding is, is just immense, 9 out of 10. Uh, if you look at his percentiles for the forward position, where he's traditionally ranked in college, you know, he was in the 70th percentile uh, amongst forwards. But if you put him into a guard, you know, he's one of the, the best rebounders in the nation amongst guards. So I put him at a 9 out of 10 because, again, I see him as kind of oscillating in that 2 to 3 spot depending on, on who he's able to guard. Activity, 5 out of 10, uh, just about average. You know, he did get into passing lanes. He did uh, block some shots, but it, it seemed something like he was more uh, – he had to use to kind of recover and uh, – to make him not look so bad defensively and not something that was really positively helping the team. And finally, awareness, 5 out of 10. Um, just just kind of average on that side. D didn't really feel super Im impacted um, or that he was, he was constantly aware of, of how um, the rest of the team and the opponents were impacting things and how he could inject himself um, from the weak side to help. So those were my evaluations. Now let's talk about the fit with the Jazz. So because Spencebaugh can score anywhere and in a lot of the ways, I think that makes him pretty scalable offensively, kind of just in a vacuum. As his career unfolds, I think in a sense he could kind of morph um, into being more on ball if that's what the team needs, you know, sliding off ball. Uh, I think that he could be, you know, a potent scorer off the bench. I think that in some situations he might be a very valuable starter. But in we're not in a vacuum. We've got this Utah Jazz team to consider, and we've got a lot of guys, in my opinion, who have some of his tendencies, and, and those tendencies being dribble the ball a lot, you know, penetrate into the mid-range, probably not get all the way to the rim, so taking a little fadeaway or a floater. Um, and then if the lane is kind of shut off, taking a step back three, that kind of stuff. And that can be very, very good for the team if done well, but it can be hurtful if done poorly. Um, and defense is currently a struggle. It's a, it's a suspect 
area, in my opinion. And that does limit your portability to different lineups because um, you're not able to hold your own and you're reliant on, on uh, certain players to help you and, and to cover up your mistakes, that type of thing. So I don't, I don't think his fit with the Jazz is just perfectly seamless because we have a lot of guys kind of around his position. We've got a lot of guys who have a tendency to do the things that he wants to do as well. And there's some defensive concerns. So I think there's a lot of potential here. But uh, without the Jazz um, you know, trading some players, without him doing exactly what I hope he could do, morphing into different situations and, uh, and doing what's necessary for winning, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how, how he kind of scales with the rest of this team. Now let's talk the future. If things go right, he's probably like a late career DeMar DeRozan or Eric Gordon in the sense that, you know, he can dribble, pass, and shoot. And, uh, you know, he's kind of one of those mid-range masters but can, can step out to the three. And he's an efficient scorer. Um, and, you know, he can attack all, all different types of players. If he's kind of the NBA version of who he is already, it's probably Cam Thomas of the Brooklyn Nets, which is a bench player, and if you clear the runway in terms of minutes and roll um, and you need someone to score, he'll do it, and he'll do it pretty efficiently. But it's probably it's probably not an approach that's really scalable on a winning team in the, the most higher leverage uh, of situations. And if things go wrong, he's probably Jared Butler, quite frankly, which is out of the league and, and kind of perennially, perennially pay, uh, playing in the G League or in international leagues, uh, in which I, I think he would be incredible at. You know, he'd be blockbuster. But, uh, you know, that that's the kind of, you know, if things go wrong, not not his floor, but um, if, if things, you know, aren't going so well in his career, that's probably the trajectory he's headed towards. So those are the guys we got in the draft. All right, now let's talk about the draft and try to give it a grade. So let's review quickly what I believe the Jazz were after, what we needed. Um, we needed talent, for sure, as, as Justin Zanuck mentioned in the post-draft interview, he said they were interested in just acquiring talent. Talent that could be, you know, scalable with the current guys they have um, and and who could be helpful no matter what a roster construction kind of looked like. And they were impressed that all the guys they got could dribble, pass, and shoot. And that was kind of like the talent foundation that they were after. In my opinion, the number one need the Jazz had was a good shot, a, a high probability at a number one guy. Um, and I kind of think that that's like the largest of the need. Like 40% of our total needs probably probably are concentrated in a shot at a number one guy. I love Larry Markkinen, but I have my doubts that he's you know a true number one guy who can put the team on his back if needed and and kind of make the the plays um, and and really kind of uh, assume the role put on the cape, you know when it when it's most needed in the playoffs. 
Um, I think he's an elite, maybe the best number two alongside, you know, Anthony Davis and such in the league. But that's why I think the Jazz need a shot at that number one guy. Self-creation is the next thing that I think is is of such paramount need. Um, we have a lot of guys, Larry Markkinen and Walker Kessler, our two best players. They need someone to get them the ball. They are elite finishers, and they rarely create for themselves. And the guys we do have that create for themselves, Taylor Horton Tucker, Jordan Clarkson, Colin Sexton, uh, in many instances they do so inefficiently. The next area need I felt like the Jazz had was passing. And that kind of assumed about 15% of what I think the total needs were. We need guys who can distribute the ball to Laurie and to, to uh, Walker. Perimeter defense, lastly, about 15% of the need. With Walker Kessler on the court, we were about an average defense last year. And so if we get some perimeter defenders... Uh, around the Jazz, then I, I think that could really propel us to to potentially top 10 in defense. So those were kind of the areas of need that I think we were trying to, that we, we should have been trying to address in the draft. So at number nine with Taylor Hendricks, I'm giving this, this pick a B. It's the safe pick because he shoots and plays defense, but I don't believe that there's a lot of creation there. There's also limited passing, and and frankly, you know, there's a bit of a conservative ceiling there. Again, I said if things break right, he's probably Jaron Jackson Jr., but that means that he's one of like the ten best defenders in the NBA, and that he can do more than he can currently off the dribble. Right, he can attack a closeout, he can navigate some interior defenders, then throw down a dunk or a layup. Those are some pretty big leaps that need to happen. Not saying he can't do it, but that's that's some that's some pretty big leaps to make. So I put the Hendricks pick right at a B. George at 16, I think, is an A minus. With Hendricks at number nine, I think the the right play was to get someone with that self-creation potential, with a bit more of that higher ceiling, a bit riskier of a pick, so that you could address some of that self-creation that you could um, you could go after someone with the balance of ceiling and floor. So we got someone who could legitimately be a number one guy um, if things break really right and who has some passing, who has a little perimeter defense and such. I may have pre- preferred Derek Whitehead at this spot, but uh, it's it's a marginal preference. Uh, it was just kind of how my board was laid out. I think uh, Derek was two spots ahead of Keontae. But it's not without its, its risk. It's not without uh, inherent risk, this pick, because... Because Keontae is turnover prone, he is streaky, and he is a defensive gambler. A lot of those things need to turn around and break right for him to, to be, uh, or to achieve the potential that we have with this pick and in, in trying to pair it nicely with Taylor Hendricks. And lastly, Bryce Sensabaugh at twenty eight. I put out a B plus. It's it's incredible value. This this was incredible value. Um, he was often mocked in the top 20. I think I had him 21 or 22. So to get him at 28 is a huge steal. 
He put together an awesome intersection of, you know, efficiency and shot difficulty. But there's a lot of work to do, particularly on his body, um, to see if you know you can't tap into some more athleticism and and, and functional strength. Uh, I, I think he's a little uh, he's a little overweight at the current moment. I think there's defensive improvement you have to hone in. There's some injury risk that is inherent there given the the knee injuries that he's had. So the overall grade I would give the Jazz draft is probably a B plus. They addressed a lot of needs and have guys with clear paths to starter level production. But I don't feel great about any of the three prospects turning into a star. Um, depending on if things break right or not, and and what what that kind of means i just don't feel that there's a high probability of that that instills enough confidence that anyone's going to be a star so now let's look ahead to future seasons um well i guess let's start with the rookie seasons upcoming so our good friend Riley Gisman, who's been on the podcast before, he sent out some tweets with some analysis of previous 9, 16, and 28 picks. And his attempt was to analyze the range of outcomes of the players at these positions. And he found in his analysis that the best rookie seasons among players drafted those positions resulted in a minus 0.3 Darko advanced metric result. And Darko is, you know, an advanced statistical metric uh, similar in in some ways to um, RAPM, Raptor, uh, RPM, uh, etc. There's a whole host of them. Um, Darko is one that Riley especially likes. So at a minus 0.3 Darko, that kind of translates to a serviceable role player with a bright future, which kind of makes some sense. I, I think that's, that is kind of what we got with Walker Kessler. Maybe he even, he even uh, demonstrated more than that. The next best of these of these uh, three was a minus 1.8 Darko, or basically a borderline rotation player, which is what we kind of had in in Oshai Abaji for the majority of the year, and what we had kind of in um, what we kind of had in our other rookie Simone Fontecchio. And lastly, the worst was about a minus 3.8 Darko or a G League player. And I think the minutes for these three rookies probably reflect a similar story. Like I think Taylor probably is around the Oshai level minutes of 1,200. Um, He probably doesn't see the minutes Walker Kessler got of 1,500 to 1,600 because I don't think he ends up being a starter till far later. Um, but I don't think he sees the G League much at all. So, so I think he's probably in that 1,200 minutes. Keontae probably is right at 1,000. He spends some time in the G League, but when he's with the team, like they, they clearly are prioritizing a role for him, um, and he, I think he kind of coasts um, on a good share of minutes, doesn't see a lot of DNP CDs. And finally, Sensabaugh, 
I think he probably gets the Oshai treatment before he was regularly starting towards the last bit of the year. So that kind of, I think, is around 700 minutes. So I think that's mostly split half and half between the G League. And when the Jazz have him, he gets kind of like those low-level backup minutes. So 15, 12, 15 minutes a game. Beyond the rookie seasons, however, Riley also performed some analysis, which uh, evaluated those players at those picks on their final year of their rookie deal. And if we look at the Darko in that perspective, the best player was a positive two or a high level starter. And I think that's probably what Taylor Hendricks, for example, uh, projects out to in that I think likely he's someone who is a really high level contributing starter. That's kind of one of his better case scenarios, I think. The next best is a zero Darko or an even player which suggests your fifth starter or perhaps your sixth man off the bench. And finally, the worst result um, out of this kind of analysis would have been uh, out of the league, a, a player with a Darko so so poor that you know they can't even stay in the league. So spot-checking history actually kind of bears out this, this analysis. If we look at some of the teams in the past who have had three picks, in a similar-ish range to ours, it kind of bears out. If you look back in 2018, the Atlanta Hawks had three picks. They had Trey Young at number five. Okay, he's a he's a high he's more than a high-end starter. Uh, you know, he is he is a star, but there are some indications that that perhaps he's being overvalued as a star. Then you have Kevin Herter at 19. So yeah, he probably is you know your fourth or fifth starter. And then you had Omari Spellman at number 30. Well, he's out of the league. So pretty much exactly as outlined. Then in 2015, the Los Angeles Lakers had three picks. You had D'Angelo Russell, number two. Not quite a high-end starter. You know, like on most teams, he's probably like your number three starter, but still. Then you have Larry Nance Jr. at number 27. Perfect fifth starter, sixth man off the bench. And then you had um, Brown at number 34. So that's a little bit later than the Jazz uh, ended up picking. But again, Brown out of the league. So that kind of bears out again too. The Jazz are still missing their star, that kind of like number one option. So given the pick situation and what the Jazz kind of did in the draft, I think that there is a scenario and kind of a perspective that says it's always it, it was always more likely we were going to trade for a star then we were going to draft for one because of how many picks we have because of the i guess the timeline of where Larry Markkinen is in his career and relative to when he'll need a contract extension it was probably always more likely that we were going to swing a trade for um, a Luka Doncic or a Jalen Brown or a LaMelo Ball or something like that now Larry could take an, another leap here um, it's possible I would personally bet against it just because I think that the next leaps you have to take are are so difficult. You know, going from, you know, only 30 players to doing what he's doing to now only 20 players. You know, the margins here are just getting razor, razor thin and, and to kind of cut the... Um, 
kind of cut the difference down on those things is, is very difficult. But uh, Keontae is probably the best hope the Jazz currently have of their young players. Um, I, I guess there is a there is a school of thought. Maybe it's Kessler, but generally speaking, the the center position generally doesn't lend itself to star number one options. So again, I would bet against it. I think Keontae is probably the best bet of our young players, uh, and I'm not still even super confident there that he ends up being a number one player. The Jazz are also, in my opinion, still missing a wing defender. Kind of if we look at this core of young players and then the the collection of players that are kind of ancillary to us, the Jazz are still kind of missing that wing defender that we want on opposing guys and that ideally opposing players would not want on, on them. So I think Laurie, Oshai, and Taylor are the best bets there. I don't feel great about any of them just because I think Taylor's uh, natural inclinations are secondary, rim defense, help defense, that kind of stuff, and not perimeter, one-on-one, lock you down um, on a critical possession type stuff. Maybe we're maybe I'm proven wrong, but uh, I think that's still something that the Jazz are missing. Uh, it'll be curious to see how the Jazz end up addressing all of those things in the coming years via trades uh, and in the upcoming years in free agency as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. If you like what we're doing, we would really appreciate some support. Uh, and the best way you can do that is by subscribing to the podcast via your favorite podcast app, uh, potentially on YouTube as well, giving us a follow on Twitter at Jabber underscore jazz. And leaving a review or a comment would also ensure that we're getting this podcast to as many jazz fans like yourself as possible. Well, as is pretty customary around here, we're going to leave you with some sounds of jazz. Thank you.